Amen. Thank you, men and women. Don't you love Christmas music? Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are going to finish the first half of the book this morning and covers chapters 4 and 5 in the spring semester. There are certain themes that you hear about so often on our campus that you may, I don't know, get tired of hearing them, (laughs) feel like we're hitting them too often. Humility, purity, evangelism, local church, leadership. Why is it that we talk about these things so often? Well, they're our mission, along with prayer and many other things. We talk about them so often because they're hard and they're important. And that last one, leadership, is, of course, our mission statement. We are wanting you, every one of you, to become a leader for ministry in the local church and the world to the praise of his glory. And you say, I don't want to be a leader. Well, you know, we think you're going to be a leader anyway. We think everybody influences somebody. That is, it's human nature. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was an NBA player who was pretty good, became a Hall of Famer. Uh, He's an analyst now, Charles Barkley. And he was kind of a a jerk. He kept getting in bar fights and doing various things that were disreputable. And he uh, he was confronted and said, you're a terrible role model. And he famously said, I'm no role model. I mean, you want a role model? Go to Mother Teresa. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't need to be a role model. I'm a basketball player. People look into me to figure out their life, then they're messed up. And for about the next five years, it became fashionable for athletes and movie stars to say they're not role models. Why? Because they were following Barclay's example. That is, he had influence. I mean, right? That's how the world works. And so you are going to influence people too. And this text, which wraps up the first half, is about leadership. It's about loving leadership. Paul has spent the first three chapters in Thessalonians talking about relationship. He's been talking about the Thessalonians themselves. He's been talking a lot about himself, this long narrative. Especially, he's been talking about his relationship with the Thessalonians. Why? It's kind of different. That is, when you read Romans, you get 11 chapters of theology, therefore application. When you read Ephesians, you get three chapters of theology, therefore application. You read Colossians, two chapters of theology, therefore application. Here we've had three chapters in Thessalonians in which there's not been a lot of theology. I mean, there's been pastoral theology, but it's mostly been relationship. And I think that Paul, in the structure of this book, is teaching us the most important thing I'm going to say to you this morning. Now, I'm going to develop the text, and we're going to see this worked out in detail. But if you walk away with only this, then maybe it'll be the most important thing I'm going to talk about. There are three different ways in the Greek language to issue a command to somebody. You can use a straight-up imperative, love each other. Or you can use what's called a hortatory subjunctive, let us love one another, which once again is often telling us to love each other. Or you can use various infinitive constructions, we ought to love one another. So there's various ways, various levels of strength. Do you know how many of those imperatives, hortatory subjunctives, and, and imperatival infinitives are in the first three chapters? 
Zero. In 43 verses. You know how many of them are in the last 46 verses? 36 of them. That is, it's going to feel like we're in a different book next semester. That is, all of a sudden, Paul starts saying, be pure and be thankful and be and be. I mean, he just starts giving us commands like crazy. And the structure of the book teaches us something about leadership. Have you ever been given commands by somebody who you weren't really sure whether they had your best interests at heart? You know, I'm not sure that person cares about me at all. They just, they just have their own agenda, and so they're telling me what to do. Now, understand that as you go through life, you have to obey the policeman even if he's not nice to you. Right, that is, you can't expect him to have this personal relationship. There are various reasons why we must obey authority with or without the personal factor. But when somebody loves us, when somebody builds a relationship with us, when somebody invests in us, and then they say, do this, it makes the obedience so much easier. Those commands are not burdensome because we believe the person is giving us the command for good and sufficient reasons. In fact, my safety in obeying someone's commands is directly proportional to their wisdom in issuing the commands. And so Paul spends three chapters, almost every line in these three chapters, establishing what a few weeks ago Dr. Brock called transcendent relationships, and then about a week later, Dr. Goodwill called them God-honoring relationships, so that he can show us what loving leadership looks like. That is, somebody who loves us is going to try to help us become like Christ, and they do that by the way of command. So, so for instance, over in chapter 4, verse 3, abstain from fornication, Paul's going to write. Well, I'm not going to preach the next sermon in the series. We'll probably hear this late January, early February, and it'll be on this text. But abstain from fornication could be heard as someone saying, I don't want you to be happy. I don't want you to have gratification. I just want you to be disciplined, and I could resist that. And if I obey it, it's just external conformity, and I'm still a fornicator at heart. Or I could hear it as somebody who loves me somebody who's investing in me, somebody who knows that if I give in to my sexual passions, then I am going to lose the blessing of God. I will be dishonoring God. And I will lose the benefit of long-term relationship with others and the peace and the contentment that comes from sexual purity. And when that, relate, when, when the command comes embedded in relationship and sinks into my heart, then I suddenly find grace gives me power to obey it. And it's no burden to abstain from fornication. So the best strategy for influencing someone, brace yourselves, this is a shocker, is to love them. That's the best strategy. Desire the best for them. And so when when Paul comes to us in the text we're about to read and says, be a loving leader, he's basically saying determine who you influence and love them, care for them. In this context, beginning of verse 6, Paul is going to model this for us. As a number, virtually every speaker has said, Paul went into Thessalonica, was there for maybe a couple of months, 
saw people saved, saw a church started, and then he got run out of town by persecution. Headed south to Athens, and he was worried about them. And he said, Timothy, go back and find out how they're doing. And then he went on to Corinth. Now, we don't know if Timothy made the journey over land, about 220 miles from Athens to Thessalonica, and kind of rugged, or if he took a ship. But supposing he just spent a week, maybe, finding out how the Thessalonians are doing, one commentator estimated that it was probably a month. We know that Paul wrote this letter right after Timothy came back with his report, so it's, it's been like a month, and Paul is on pins and needles. How are these Thessalonian professing believers doing? Has persecution shaken them loose from their faith? Are they holding firm? Are they believing? Are they maturing? I mean, in Philippians, he says, be anxious for nothing. And so I'm sure he's trying real hard to obey that command. But he loves these people. He's worried about them. And so our text begins with Timothy's good news. Verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 3. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, he came back finally and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, of your faith and love. The first thing I want you to know about loving leadership comes directly out of the title of my sermon. Leaders deeply care for the people they lead. They deeply care for them. We see this in verses 8, 9, and 10. This was like the best news that Paul could have received. It's in two parts. Good tidings of your faith and love. Guess what it means that these Thessalonians still have, are showing, faith and love. They're true believers. They're true believers. God's got their hearts. That is, true believers demonstrate it through faith, dependence on Christ, love for God and others, and hope, which is a major theme of this letter. And Timothy comes back and says, Paul, I spent some time up in Thessalonica. Yeah, they're being persecuted. Yeah, some of the Jewish believers are being cast out of the synagogue. Yeah, they're the least popular people in Thessalonica, but man, you should see their faith and love. And Paul says, oh, I am so comforted by that. And then Timothy says something even better. Well, not better than they're being saved, but, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. When I got there, the Thessalonians said, Timothy, how's Paul doing? We miss him. Humanly speaking, we're on our way to glory because of that man. Is he safe? Is he doing all right? We've been worried about him. It's been like a month. They love him just like he loves them. Do you see how this is a relationship in which a loving leader who invests in people will find people who are investing in them? And that our influence goes both directions? I don't know any parent, any teacher, any pastor who doesn't experience this reciprocal dynamic where they, where they love people and they care for them and they invest in them and then they get loved back. And Timothy comes and says, they love you, Paul. Therefore, verse 7, brethren, this warm brethren, brothers and sisters, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So why did Paul need comfort? 
He's going through a rough time. Now, this is kind of typical for Paul. You know, one commentator said everywhere Paul went, you had revival and riot. And he's in Philippi, and they beat him and imprison him, and he leaves and goes to Thessalonica, and they run him out of town, a tumult, and then he goes to Berea, and they run him out of town, and he goes to Athens, and he essentially stands trial in the Areopagus, and he goes to Corinth, and he says in Corinth that he was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling because of the opposition of this incredibly pagan culture. Leaders face their own challenges. They're always facing various challenges that go beyond the immediate task. But when the people they're leading love them and show concern for them, it produces tremendous comfort. Followers can add the leader's challenges or they can alleviate those challenges. Every one of us is both a leader and a follower. And there's something in this text on both sides. His well-being is intimately connected to the well-being of these people he loves. I hope that as we work through this text and talk about Paul and the Thessalonians, you will see yourself and some people that you're influencing. I couldn't work on this text without having lots of people in different settings come to my heart and mind. And I measured myself in this relationship to Paul. That's what I want you to do this morning. Verse 8. But now, for now... We live if you stand fast in the Lord. Maybe that's the key verse of this whole paragraph. Now we live. That is an exclamation, a joyful exclamation. Timothy came back and said, they're doing well, Paul. And Paul says, glory, I can live now. And it's almost humorous to read the commentators because they wrestle with what exactly it means, I live. You know, they wrestle with whether this means to have revived this or that, and they parse it in paragraphs. Anybody who's been distressed about somebody you're leading, and then you see positive results in their life, you see them coming along, you say, oh, now I can live. Right. That is that burden of worrying No, you can't worry. It's a sin to worry. Of being deeply concerned, of bearing this burden for their well-being. Are they they coming along? Are my children walking in truth? Are my students believing the stuff I'm pouring into them every week? Is is my prayer group or my small group at church, uh, are they following on with the Lord? And then then you get evidences that they are. You say, now I can live. His life is bound up with these people. He cares about him deeply. But there's an interesting ambiguity in the way he expresses it. Because he says, now we live, implying that we just got the word from Timothy, and it's such good news that now we live. And then he, then he throws a conditional in there. And by the way, this is a really rare conditional form. Very unusual in the New Testament. And it suggests that his continuing ability to live to have this burden off his shoulders, to be thrilled with a... Well, it sort of depends on them standing fast in the Lord. That is, it's not just a backwards look, it's a forward look. He's encouraging them to stand fast in the Lord. Keep on keeping on. As long as you are following God, I can live. 
But if you turn away, it's like, oh, I love you too much to see that. It would break my heart for you to turn away from the Lord. I, this isn't about me. Every teacher in here could give this testimony. I don't know what the percentages are. The vast majority of the students I have taught during my years here seem to be following after God. They seem to be loving the Lord. They seem to be faithful at church. Well, that keeps me going every day. And then there are some that you pour your life into, and they don't stand firm in the Lord. They turn away after the world and the flesh. So number one, leaders are invested. You're invested in somebody, invest more, and invest for the, in the right ways. Number two, in verse nine, we see that leaders rejoice over the work of God and the people they lead. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy, for your sakes before our God. What thanks can we render to... This verse is bursting with emotion. I mean, Paul is thrilled. He was concerned, and he's got this wonderful news. And he was active in this. He went there despite a bloody back to preach to these Thessalonians. He went there and put himself at risk. He won them to Christ. He nurtured them. He discipled them. He's been praying for them diligently. He is out there. The Thessalonians themselves have been persevering in the faith, and they've been reading their scriptures, and they've been meeting for edification, and they are dealing with persecution. But who does Paul give thanks to? God? Yeah. God's the one who's doing the work. God is the one who is making the Thessalonians stand firm. What thanks can we render? Paul doesn't say what thanks can we render to ourselves because we were such good leaders. He doesn't say what thanks can we render to you because you've been such good followers. What thanks can we render to God? Because spiritual benefit, spiritual growth, spiritual development, it's God's province. He's the only one who does the work. I can teach my classes. God's got to take the words and drill them down into hearts and minds. I can teach my kids. God's got to take my instruction and drill it down to the hearts and minds. I can preach sermons to people. Your influence will only go as far as the Holy Spirit of God takes it. And so when you see it rooting and fruiting, you thank God. And it's interesting how Paul expresses this. What thanks can we render to God? This word render was a very common expression in the Greco-Roman world for, for showing gratitude for a benefit received. So somebody does something for you, and in the Roman world, it was considered extremely inappropriate for you not to give thanks commensurate with the benefit. Somebody does something for you, and you essentially pay them back. You render to them thanks for what they've done for you, uh, it would be deplorable for you to just walk away saying, I deserve that. No, you give thanks for it. One of the most beautiful expressions of this is, was in Seneca, the uh, philosopher who wrote, I shall never be able to repay you my gratitude, but at any rate, I shall not cease from declaring everywhere that I am unable to repay it. That is, you'll never know how much it means to me, but listen, I'm going to tell everybody how much it means to me. Paul doesn't believe he can pay God back. 
We shouldn't even try to pay God back. What God does for us is infinite. But his language shows that all the credit goes to God. What thanks can we render to God for you? And what's he thankful for specifically? Your your heads are down in verse 9. Because of all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Here's what I'm most thankful for. You've brought me joy. You say, well, then it's about Paul. (laughs) No, this is spiritual joy. This is joy before God. Paul says, I joy with joy. It's a very redundant expression, actually. It's like, I can't express how much joy this is. Now, Paul has a joy that these Thessalonians can't touch. He has a joy in God that enables him to sing when he's in the prison. On the other hand, when he hears that they love God and are following God and are growing in God, it just multiplies his joy. He joys with joy. He joys before God. This is not some fleeting happiness. This isn't the happiness of that was a really good candy bar. This is the kind of joy that sustains you when you're doing really hard ministry in Corinth. He joys with joy because they are standing firm. He's facing significant challenges. He needs this. A week ago, and I won't get into detail here, it wouldn't be appropriate, but uh, I I received some very, very difficult family news uh, that plunged my wife and me into pretty significant sadness. And, And Monday was a rough day. And on Tuesday morning, a student who graduated six or seven years ago, who had never spoken to me since he graduated, I remember him. But if you had said, list students who graduated six, seven years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say his name before I got the email. He writes me an email, first thing in the morning on Tuesday. And uh, he, he said a number of kind things about influence. You know, thank you for how the Lord used you in my life. And he wrote, as you enter into the thick of the semester, I hope hearing from a grateful student from years gone by can serve as a word of encouragement and means to lighten heart during what tends to be a heavy time of year. Well, I wrote him back and said only eternity would show him how much that meant to me. I mean, I desperately needed that that morning. Uh, God gave me actually several things. Uh, One of them was Dr. Marriott's sermon in chapel on Monday morning. And then that email on Tuesday morning uh, caused me to joy with joy that, you know what, I, by God's grace, tried to influence that kid, me and a whole lot of other people. And he's standing firm in the faith. That's how leaders respond to those they lead. They rejoice when God does a work that they can't do. Leaders also desire to give spiritual benefit to the people they lead. We see that in verse 10. They think like a leader. Paul could have said, ah, the Thessalonians are doing great. I don't need to go there anymore. Now I can set my eyes on other places. They don't need me. They're doing fine. But that's not how a leader thinks. He's influenced them before. It has produced fruit. He wants to influence them some more. He just wants to keep investing. And so he says, night and day, I am praying exceedingly that we might see your face. I kind of want to get back to you guys. I've been wanting to for a while. 
Back in chapter 2, verse 18, it said, time and again we tried to come, but Satan hindered us. And he says, I've been praying for you. He prays like a leader. He describes it in three ways, night and day. That's a conventional way of saying urgently, consistently, often. I pray for you. The word praying he uses here is the strongest word for praying in the New Testament. It has kind of built into it the idea of insistence. And then I love the word exceedingly. You see that word? It's got the word surpass. And then it's got a preposition built onto it that says to surpass a lot. And this has got a preposition built on that to say a lot more surpassing a lot. I mean, it's just, you can't have a stronger word than that. And so our, our translators render it exceedingly. But the idea is that Paul is just on his face begging God to do the work in the Thessalonians. Well, that only makes sense, right? Who's doing the work? God's doing the work. What is the most important thing you can do for people you want to influence for Christ? Pray for them. Pray for them night and day. Pray for them with insistent prayer. Pray for them exceedingly. Don't ever feel like you've prayed for them enough. Take them before the throne. He wants to have presence like a leader. I wish I could be there. I love the expression, Face-to-face ministry is what he wants. Sometimes the Lord puts people under us that we don't choose. Well, do you like the faces of the people you lead? Ask God to give you a love for those people. Paul wants to see them face-to-face so that he can impact them. He wants influence like a leader, that he might perfect, I'm at the end of verse 10, that which is lacking in your faith. Now, he just heard from Timothy that they are standing firm in the faith. When he writes this letter, in verse 3, he's going to say, I am so thankful for your work driven by faith. These people are people of faith. Why does he need to perfect that which is lacking in their faith? Because they're not glorified yet. Neither are the people you're influencing. Every person that we've been called to influence needs to take one more step. Wherever they are spiritually, they can be a little further, a little closer to the kingdom. And that's our job. We are instruments in the master's hands to help people in their advance spiritually. We can help people mature in the faith. By the way, just in passing, he's praying that he can go see them. Well, if you read on in Acts and the pastoral epistles, I think this prayer was answered. You know, he got up to Macedonia on a number of occasions and probably saw these Thessalonians. But he just told us that he prays constantly for these people. Our text ends with a sample of this praying. So leaders pray for the people they lead, beginning of verse 11. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. This is called a wish prayer. Paul puts these in his letters in a number of places where he says, I pray for you. Now may God. And he gives you an example of how he prays. So 10, 11, and 12, I'm sorry, 11, 12, and 13 are the kind of praying that Paul did for the Thessalonians. And the first prayer request is for providential discipleship opportunities. Lord, direct my way 
so that I can influence the Thessalonians. Do you pray for opportunities to influence people? Say, Lord, who am I going to impact today? Who am I going to see today? Direct my way. Help me to be able to, to be the right kind of influence. May my conversation, may my attitude, may my leadership help that person or those people to become more like Jesus. Pray for providential opportunities. God is sovereign. He can overcome any obstacles, including Satan. Pray for those opportunities. By the way, just in passing, this is a very high Christology. He prays to God and the Father, and he prays to Jesus Christ. Verse 12. And here is the main prayer request. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward everybody else and toward all, even as we love you. He prays for increasing love. That is basically the heartbeat of the Christian life. Didn't our Lord teach us that? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself. So if I am successfully influencing someone, they will love God more and they will love others more. In fact, to love another person is to help that person to love God more. Quoting Kierkegaard, actually. So love is what it's about. Love drives edification. You love each other. And love drives evangelism. You love everybody else. And so Paul says, I am praying passionately for you that your love will just increase and abound, grow and overflow. And by the way, if you want to know how to do that, do it like we've loved you. There's the model. Paul says, here's the kind of leadership I show. I love them. And then if they love others and God the way I've loved God and others, they'll be in the right direction. So if the people you are influencing love God and love others like you love God and love others, will they be growing, increasing, and abounding in love? That's the challenge for us. And then verse 13 as we close. Verse 13 is not another request. Verse 13 is what love will do in the lives of these people. To the end, may love increase and abound one toward in you, one toward another, and toward all men for this purpose, that God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. You want to be holy? Well, then love God and others. Holiness flows out of love. And Paul wants them to be loving people who therefore live holy lives. That's why in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to get 36 commands about how to be holy. But don't lose sight of the fact that your holiness will come from loving God and others. That's the, that's the engine that drives it. But as our text wraps up, Paul makes this eschatological. I want your hearts to be established and unblameable in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends on the return of Christ. Every one of them. 
And in one, on the one hand, if you are a believer, justified in Jesus Christ, then when he returns, you will be enrobed in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and you will stand perfect before the Father. On the other hand, the New Testament constantly connects sanctification to glorification. That we are getting to glorification by means of sanctification. That we are becoming more holy so that we will stand before the Lord one day unblemished and unblameable. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. My goal is so that you can stand before Christ one day as holy people. And so I pray for you every day that you'll love God more. When you love God more, man, that sin is going to be driven out. And you are going to be transformed into his image. So the last two chapters of Thessalonians are going to give us commands about how this is all lived out. So stay tuned. But this paragraph culminates a whole section of Thessalonians that says, I love you people. I, I, I think of you as like a mother thinks about her baby. I think of you like a father pitters his child. I have served you and cared for you. Why? Because I want you to realize that obeying the commands is the best way to live. And obedience flows out of relationship. So what kind of leader are you and I going to be? Are we going to deeply care for the people we have the opportunity to influence? Are we going to rejoice when we see evidence of God working in them? Are we going to desire direct influence of their lives whenever we can? But whether we can or not, are we going to pray for them? That their growth in love will lead them to holiness and prepare them for the return of Christ. That's what loving leadership looks like. And our prayer is that you and we will be leaders who minister in the local church in the world to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for the model of leadership that Paul gives us. Lord, we are conscious of our failures as leaders. We are conscious of sometimes modeling all the wrong things. I pray that you give every one of us grace to embrace the calling you've given us to be leaders. Lord, if we're inclined to run from it because of our failures, I pray that we would repent both of our failures and of our lack of faith in running from leadership. Help every person here to embrace the opportunity to influence, and I pray that our influence would be right, that we would help people to love you more, and therefore to become more holy, especially as we see the day approaching. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.